0: All right, we are in Genesis. Uh, We are in this series called Wrestling with God. It is an important thing to do, to wrestle with God. In fact, it is so important that he changed a community's name to indicate that. Uh, Jacob. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel, which the Hebrew means God contends with man or we wrestle with God, right? It's almost kind of two sides of the same coin depending on which perspective you're taking. But there is this dynamic that he cares for us so much that he's not willing to let us just run off and experience corruption that leads to death. He wants us to experience life, but it doesn't come naturally. And so what that means is that he has to contend with us Uh, in those moments where we are choosing uh, a will apart from his own, which the more you get to know him, the more you realize how often you do that. Uh, And so here we are in Genesis chapter 29. Uh, You'll remember that preceding the passage that we're going to read today, we had Laban. Dun, dun dun Laban, bad dude. Let's try that again because you guys were terrible at that. You had Laban. Dun, dun, dun. That was good. You're getting better at this. All right, you good. Uh, and, you know, now Laban, uh, he tricked a trickster because Jacob himself was a deceiver. Uh, and so now, in some senses, God's kind of getting him to be aware that this is not how you live life going around deceiving people, and he's really kind of getting a dose of his own medicine. But boy, as much as we kind of joke about it, what Laban did to Jacob, well, what Jacob did to Esau, terrible, uh, deceiving him, his own brother, his own kin, but here you have Uncle Laban doing something terrible to uh, Jacob on, uh, after uh, negotiating a deal for his daughter. (laughs) I like that. That's kind of funny. Not today we don't do that, Okay. Descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay, we'll get into that a little bit more here in a minute. After negotiating a deal, work seven years, I'll give you my daughter. Uh, He's in love with Rachel. uh, Probably had a little too much that night. And he wakes up next to Leah. Uh, And so uh, Laban tricks him. And after that bridal week, uh, he then gives Rachel to him. So he marries sisters a week apart from one another. Don't do that. It's not good, okay? Uh, And then uh, they have some tension. And then but part of the deal to marry the second one, the one whom he loved the most, was another seven years. So what we're going to read today is the following 14 years. You got the seven that he worked for, the one, the bridal week, and now the next 14 years is what we're going to read, all right? When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved... He enabled her to become pregnant while Rachel remained childless. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has looked with pity on my oppressed condition. Surely my husband will love me now. She became pregnant again and had another son. She said, Because the Lord heard that I was unloved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. She became pregnant again and had another son. She said, Now this time my husband will show me affection because I have given birth to three sons for him. That is why he was named Levi. She became pregnant again and had another son. She said, This time I will praise the Lord. That is why she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she could not give Jacob children, she became jealous of her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Now, if you know the end of the story, that is not necessarily the best prayer that she just made right there. Jacob became furious with Rachel and exclaimed, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? She replied, here is my servant, Billa. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trap, folks. go back to the passage, but mind you, have sexual relations with her so that she can bear children for me and I can have a family through her. So Rachel gave him her servant, Billa, as a wife, and Jacob had marital relations with her. Billah became pregnant and gave Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has responded to my prayer and given me a son. That is why she named him Dan. Billah, Rachel's servant, became pregnant again and gave Jacob another son. Then Rachel said, I have fought a desperate struggle with my sister, but I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she gave her servant Zilpah to Jacob as a wife. It's a trap, folks. Soon Leah's servant Zilpah gave Jacob a son. Leah said, "How fortunate!" she named him Gad. Then Leah's servant Zilpah gave Jacob another son. Leah said, "How happy I am for women will call me happy," so she named him Asher. At the same time of the wheat harvest, or at the time of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found some mandrake plants in a field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, "Give me some of your son's mandrakes." But Leah replied, Isn't it enough that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes too? All right, Rachel said. He may sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Just going to pause there for a moment to let you kind of process through that she is equating her husband to mandrakes. I don't think I'm comfortable with that correlation, but... When Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must sleep with me because I have paid for your services with my son's mandrakes. So he had marital relations with her that night. God paid attention to Leah. She became pregnant and gave Jacob a son for the fifth time. Then Leah said, God has granted me a reward because I gave my servant to my husband as a wife. So she named him Issachar. Leah became pregnant again and gave Jacob a son for the sixth time. Then Leah said, God has given me a good gift. Now my husband will honor me because I have given him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. After that, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God took note of Rachel. He paid attention to her and enabled her to become pregnant. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Then she said, God has taken away my shame. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me yet another son. All right. What do you think of that one? Did you, did you expect to come to church and hear that? Well, you should have. It's Father's Day. <laughs> A lot of fathering happening going on here in this passage. And so I thought it would be appropriate. I timed this all out from way back when we start. No. Anyhow, uh, we walk through this passage. There are going to be some things that we can wrestle with immediately on the surface. There are going to be some things we're not going to have time to wrestle with. uh, Some of the cultural things about giving a servant as a wife. uh, But the reality is what really kind of comes back into play is this idea that is going to be so invaluable for you as you read through Scripture to be able to ask some questions. Every time you read through a little account you should be asking the question to God, why is this here? Right? You might be asking that question right now, what, you, maybe a little bit differently. Why are you preaching this passage? Uh, but the, the, really the heart or the motive of that is why is it here and what are we to learn from this? Now, one of the things, we've answered that in three ways. One is it is giving an account of uh, this nation that is starting to grow. Okay, that's the first part. The second is that it's useful for two communities of faith, the uh, growing Israelite community and then the community of the church. And so it's up to the communities of faith to then ask those questions of going, well, why are you, uh, you know, going through this? Now, uh, as you do that, you're going to want to pay attention to a very valuable principle, and that is when you read through Scripture, there are sometimes the accounts are descriptive and there are sometimes their accounts are prescriptive. You know the difference between the two? Okay, one is this is just a description of what happened to people. And another is this is what you should be doing. That's what a prescription is. You get that and you take the prescription. Now, I'm going to give you a very simple test. In this passage, do you think, it, if, is it a description Or is it a prescription? All in favor of description, raise your hands. Okay, good. All in favor of prescription, raise your hands. No. Okay, cancel all the tickets that I had to send people to Utah. Because if you think it's prescription, there's a fundamentalist Latter-day Saints group that would love to welcome you into their community. Uh, But... As much as we joke about that, very literally, women are being abused to this day because of not understanding how to read Scripture. And so when I say that this is an invaluable tool, it really is an invaluable tool to help you process as you read through Scripture, God, are you telling me this is the way that I should live? Or are you simply saying this is what happened to a group of people? Now, we see corruption all over the place in this story. And so I would invite you to consider that this is not a prescription, as you, I think, are already rightly sensing, but that it is a description of an account. And that's so valuable to begin to examine your own life with, right? To be able to think back about things that have happened to you and be able to make the right identification as you communicate your story to other people Uh, Whether or not it's a description of what has happened to you, or are you suggesting that this is a prescription that everybody should follow? Now, I said that in a general sense, but you're going to have to spend some time kind of walking through both seeing it in the story, but then examining it in your own life to see where you can avoid some of that discrepancy between uh, description and prescription. And then carry it through to all of Scripture, right? As you're walking through Scripture, have the pulse of Scripture to see whether or not it's its uh, description or prescription. Secondly, uh, did anybody recognize any of these names? I hope you did. Who are the names of all these children? What's that? The 12 tribes of Israel, right? So you are starting to get uh, 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 names that are going to be repeated throughout Scripture. And so as you familiarize yourself with some of the names of the sons here, know that it's not a fruitless endeavor, uh, but that as you read through the rest of Scripture, you're going to go, oh, this was the son. these are very tangibly becoming groupings of people. They're going to be tribes that have thousands and thousands of people. Uh, if you have any Jewish friends, anybody have any Jewish friends? We're so far out here in the Pacific. There's very few Jewish people out here. Uh, which saddens me. I grew up all around Jewish people. I love uh, Jew, If you know Jewish friends, you could ask them what their tribe. Uh, my buddies, they know their tribes. Uh, one of my friends is, uh, if, first of all, if you know any Cohen, have you ever heard of any Cohens? If you ever come across a Cohen, do you know what that literally means? In Hebrew, it means priest. Guess what tribe he's from? You know, even if he doesn't know, he's from the tribe of Levi. Because that was the priestly tribe, Cohen. Okay, uh, so these names are gonna, you're gonna familiarize yourself. We're gonna get, learn more about that. Uh, but as we go through this passage, we have a couple things that we would just wanna observe for today. Uh, and one of those things is this idea of the power of the promise. We have already talked about the power of the promise. And so what's happening now as we move further into Genesis is we're gonna start regurgitating a little bit some of the themes that have been there, and those themes were developed so that when we get to the next story, we can go back and apply the same principles that we learned to the next passage. So here's what we saw in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. Remember, you probably don't remember, That's okay. Uh, we talked about a literary device called a chiasm, uh, and a chiasm is structured in Hebrew so that they can make a major point right in the middle but it's bracketed by similar stories. Boop, 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 right? It kind of makes an X, which is the Hebrew ticket Okay. Uh, in Genesis 12 and 20, these are similar stories of Abraham uh, lying about his wife because he's fearful uh, and insecure about his position in the land. For as much as Abraham did well with his faith, faith there were times that he failed. And, and so uh, one of those was these times when he would go into Egypt and then into another territory. And he would meet and he'd go, man, my wife is so hot. They're going to kill me uh, to get to my wife. So you know what I'm going to tell them so that I don't die is I'm going to tell them that she's my sister. Uh, and, And so he does that in chapters 12 and 20. He forgets that the God who's able to raise him back to life is also the God that promised to him, I will provide and protect you as you go in and bring order and chaos to the land and so he is he misses this point and he goes back into his own natural reaction does that sound familiar i hope it does because we all do that when faced with the threat of provision and protection we have natural fears that will sometime blind us from a god who's able to address those fears in a much healthier way And so what did we learn? The power of the promise overcomes our corruption that leads ultimately to death. Man, that is good news right there. To be able to have this promise that says, I will go in and provide and protect you as you go into the chaos of the world. And is the world chaotic? Oh man, the world is becoming more and more chaotic, it seems. And yet there is this God who has said to you and to I, I will provide and protect you. I promise to do that. I'm sending you in, but I promise to provide and protect. And even in those moments when our fears and insecurities, that, that corruption that we have, when we give in to that, it doesn't stop the promise. And that's what we learned. Uh, it's not dependent on our, our obedience. And there should be, I don't know how many people are in here, there should be a chorus of amens. Because, thank heavens, we don't have to uh, be obedient in order for the promise to work, right? God said, even, even in your, despite your corruption, what does it say? Jesus said, even when you were dead in your sins, I loved you. It, what he's saying is that my promise is not going to stop simply because you are dying. No, I'm going to bring life one way or the other. And even when physical death takes you, I'm your guy, I am your God because I can bring you back to life. Uh, all this, then, our response should, when we see this happening, you see this movement and go, oh, that's right. I should have never given in to the corruption of my fears and desires. Right? It brings us back to God and aligns us with his will. We said it a little bit differently in chapter 20. Uh, I didn't move on. Uh, I got it back here. Uh, there you go. Uh, it overcomes the way of the world and overcomes the way of man. We've, we've used that language in here regularly. The power of the promise. Isn't that good news? That the promise is not subject to the way of this world. Oh, that's relieving because the way of this world right now is concerning, to say the least. Uh, or the way of man. We don't have that either. Uh, the power of the promise, we looked at another passage and we preached about this unsustainable worldview. Now walk yourself right through what we just read and see if these things are, are there. Do you think that there were any lies being listened to uh, by Leah, Rachel, Billa, Zilpah, and Jacob? Man, there's probably an awful lot of lies. Can you imagine? You have to sometimes just put yourself in the sandals of these folks. I mean, think about Leah and Rachel. They're sisters. And now, all of a sudden, because of their father, they are now vying for the love of their husband. That alone, I mean, you could write, you could write stories on this. right? In fact, I think Days of Our Lives, I think... Now, you have this tension, though, of this, this sibling thing going on, and you can imagine, I mean, say you're, you, many of you are probably siblings. You probably, I'm hopeful, didn't marry the same person, same spouse, and yet you could probably relate on that feeling of jealousy between the siblings, Oh, mom loves you more because she made you brownies, and she gave me carrots. I don't know that never happened to me. I don't know where that came came from. But it's a silly illustration to think about some of that sibling tension that happens, right? Uh, regardless of even marriage, you have that tension that happens between, and then you start hearing. It's a it's f- a very fertile ground for the enemy to come in and start lying to you, right? I mean, that's, that's what happens all the time. And whether or not you believe those things to be true, and we see in this story that, boy, there's conflict, there's tension between the sisters, there's tension between the spouse, and uh, think of the servants, even though we don't really understand how can you have a servant that becomes a wife but isn't really a full-on wife, uh, you have all kinds of things going on. The way of the world, uh, you have that being abetted here. Our flesh. You think Jacob, what do you think Jacob was thinking? Do you think he was thinking that it was a trap? No. Jacob's like, so uh, you want to give me your servant? Okay. I'm your guy. And now you want to give, I'm your guy. Right? You think about the flesh uh, and the desires, the deceptive desires that we would have. Again, we are joking a little bit, but this is not to minimize the fact that in the history of the world, women have been abused by this type of kind of world system combined with the de- deceitful desires, right? I mean, it's not healthy. Uh, you have this whole believing the ends justify the means. So they become, the servant girls become uh, pregnant. And what are the responses of the, t- of the sisters? Praise God, this is exactly how I thought it would work out. Look, a baby has come, and he must be rewarding me because I was self-sacrificial in giving my servant to my husband. You see, the ends don't justify the means. And we see that all, that's a repeating theme in Genesis. You have to continue to ask yourself the question, is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? The tool for you that I have been trying to kind of communicate over and over is what is the tell, right? If you're a good poker player, you're, you're sitting around a table and you uh, people have tells so that you know when you should go into a hand, you should know when you fold a hand. Well, there's tells in the spiritual world. And one of the major tells of whether you can tell is this descriptive or prescriptive is is there resulting conflict from the decisions that are being made? And there's clearly resulting conflict throughout this passage. Uh, and, And so as you go into this, you go, wait a minute, I don't think this is a prescription for how we are supposed to do this. In fact, the prescription is that we are to believe in a God who is able to raise the dead back to life. He did so already by raising... Sarah's womb back to life so that Sarah could have a child. So this is, this is in the lineage of, of Rachel. Rachel knows this story. So she should have a confidence of going, wait a minute, no, I don't need to give in to the way of the world. I don't need to give in to the way of man. God has called me to bring order and purpose and life everywhere we go. And I, I, now she wouldn't have known this There should have been a move past the mere physical for her to understanding her calling as a woman, this motherhood calling of going, it doesn't matter if I have physical kids or not, I can use the motherhood mantle that I have to bring what is needed in my community. Right, And that's the tension that we have here because there's so many, so many issues here at stake. In some senses, we read this and go, oh, these poor women, they're so myopic about their identity, right? They're just so focused on whether they're giving birth. And I think, you know, we're in 21st century America, and we're like, come on, that's such a patriarchal view. Women are worth more than that. I mean, and of course they are. And do you know how we know that? Because of Scripture, I mean, Proverbs 31 talks about all the things that a woman can do. You read all through Scripture identities of women who are doing great things for the kingdom of God, and it is not simply giving birth. But before you get too far down the road on that one, you have to remember that one of the great privileges and honors of women is to give birth. And so in 21st century America, we have to hold some type of tension where we don't just throw out the calling of women to bring life. But we move beyond the mere physical, and we recognize that in a spiritual sense, uh, and physical too, but in a spiritual sense, men and women have been called to live out their imago day to bring order, purpose, and life everywhere they go. And so while women are so much more than what is being represented in this passage, let's not forget that giving birth is a very good thing and one of the tangible ways that they live that out. Now, if you're dissatisfied with anything that I just said, I'd be happy to have a coffee with you and go into the entire conversation in a much greater way. Uh, But for the rest of you, I'm going to move on. So yeah, keep the pulse of this conflict because then you're going to be able to kind of go back in and see, oh, is this the way that I should do it or is this not the way that I should do it? And I think we see enough conflict in this passage uh, to avoid it. Here's what I would like to leave you with today. The power of the promise, it is not stopped by the doubts, fears, insecurities, identity crises, or correlation issues that we see in this passage. None of those things stop the promise. You see, what God is saying, he's going, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you exert your will over mine, you'll never win. Death will never triumph over my promise to bring life. And so you see him at every stop. And we, uh, I think it was Eddie referred to later in Genesis, okay, don't give chapter 50 away. I'm not there yet, man. Come on, you said pulling the right. No, he referred to this passage talking about how God works everything out for the good. Well, it doesn't mean that we don't call evil evil. There's still evil that happens. And if your father abused you, we call that evil, right? But it doesn't mean that in some senses that God can't take the broken pieces of what happened and bring something good. Do you know why? It's his nature to do that because he's a God that brings life from death. And so as we see in this story, we can put ourselves in their sandals and we can recognize all the doubts, all the fears, all the insecurities, the identity crises. I put that language in there very purposefully because it seems apropos in 21st century America to talk about identity crises. And then the correlation issues. Do you see what they're doing? They're correlating actions that have happened to them and miscorrelating and saying, oh, that's because God loves that because their ends are justifying their means. No, we, none of that can stop the power of the promise. But all those things affect you and I. All those things up there affected the disciples Okay, so let's make that leap. Let's go from this passage and think about the disciples for a moment, right? Think about, oh, well, you have Doubting Thomas. I mean, that's his name, right? Uh, you have the fear of these disciples who said, well, I've left everything. And what's in it for me now that you're crucified? What? You have Peter fearful and doubting and denying Christ. You have identity crisis of going, wait a minute, I thought I was called to be a disciple. And think about what they were talking about. Who's going to sit on your left? Who's going to sit on your right? Talk about identity crisis. The disciples had these things. Correlation issues where they're going back and they're hearing Jesus speak accurately about the truth. And they're missing the point constantly. Folks, that's you and I. It's not just happening in this story in Genesis. It's not just happening to the disciples. It's happening to you and I. And the good news is that the power of the promise prevails over all of it. There's not a single thing that can stop God from bringing life, even when we choose corruption that leads to death. This is good news These stories are in here for the faith communities to reflect and go, you know what, I don't need to go down the same path that they went down. Now I'm going to align myself to the way of God and I'm going to choose the Jesus way above my way and then you're going to experience even greater life because that's who God is. He's a God who's going to come and he's just going to bless you with life abundant and life eternal. It's his nature. And so as you walk out these doors today, what I would hope is that you have a confidence, not in yourself, but in the confidence of a God who has promised, and that promise cannot be thwarted, not by anything. Father, I know I need that recognition on a a much greater level, and regular basis in my life, that I need to reflect on that. that There's so many things that are out there trying to draw our attention away from you that it's refreshing to come and to be able to be presented over and over and over again throughout Scripture that your promise will prevail, and it will prevail because you are a God of life. Father, as we we believe in that and take steps of faith to see that, then we're going to be able to experience it and testify about it. And our testimonies are going to draw even more people into a curious relationship with you, wondering if you will do the same for them. And they will be pleasantly surprised to know that your life extends to all people. So may we be people who reflect that glory to our family, our friends, our neighbors, and our coworkers, And may they embrace the life that you so lavishly want to give to them. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, it's 1145. So, if you need to get going, that's just fine. But otherwise, I invite you to stand to your feet. Let's sing the blessing.